American Gods began as far back as 1992 when Neil Gaiman moved from England, his country of birth, to the United States. That's when a few seemingly unconnected ideas began to bloom and eventually adjoin. He was living in Minneapolis, Minnesota when dreams and visions began to appear in his mind. One vision included two men meeting on a plane. Another was about a car on a frozen lake. More visions came and went, some of them lodging themselves in his mind and becoming ideas for what he thought could be a novel. But what was at the forefront of the slowly unfolding concept was America itself, which would be the main inspiration for the novel. He was living in an unfamiliar country, a place that he did not yet understand, but one that he wanted to understand. The country he found himself in somewhat resembled the America he'd read about in books and seen in movies, but at the same time, it was a very different place than the one portrayed in fiction. He felt it was filled with a great oddness, a great culture clash, and from that came a desire to point out to Americans how very odd their country actually was. And with that vague concept growing more solid, began the journey of what would become one of Neil Gaiman's most praised and famous books. You're listening to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and the creators of magic. I am your host, Jason Nemore Hardin, and today we're talking about Neil Gaiman's American Gods. The first edition of American Gods was published on June 19, 2001. This synopsis, however, is from a slightly later version. Days before his release from prison, Shadow's wife, Laura, dies in a mysterious car crash. Numbly, he makes his way back home. On the plane, he encounters the enigmatic Mr. Wednesday, who claims to be a refugee from a distant war a former god and the king of America. Together they embark on a profoundly strange journey across the heart of the USA, whilst all around them a storm of preternatural and epic proportions threatens to break. Scary, gripping, and deeply unsettling, American Gods takes a long, hard look into the soul of America. You'll be surprised by what and who it finds there. Quote, Growing up is highly overrated. Just be an author. End quote. Neil Gaiman was born Neil Richard Gaiman on November 10, 1960 in the town of Port Chester, Hampshire in England. The Gaimans moved to the West Sussex town of East Grinstead in 1965, where his parents would study Dianetics at the Scientology Center in town. Despite coming from Jewish ancestry, his parents became infatuated with Scientology, which made it difficult for Neil and his siblings when asked what religion they belonged to. Eventually, they would usually answer that they were Jewish Scientologists. Later in his life, 
Neil would not identify with either religion and would refer to both Judaism and Scientology as his family's religion. He was a very bright child and was already able to read by the age of four. He found that reading gave him pleasure, thus he formed an early love for the written word. Academically, he performed well at most subjects in school, but not due to his interest in the subjects themselves, but rather because of his immense love of reading. On the first day of the school year when the class was given the textbooks they would use the coming year, he would read through them with a ravenous thirst, which in turn meant that he knew what was coming up and quite easily excelled. For his seventh birthday, young Neil was given C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia series. He would later recall how he admired the use of parenthetical statements that were provided to the reader throughout the book series. He decided then that when he became an author, he would be able to do similar things in parentheses. The seeds of authorship were obviously already in the process of cultivation. When he was approximately 10 years old, he read his way through the works of Dennis Wheatley, in particular, The Car of Gifford Hillary and The Haunting of Toby Jug made an impact on him. Another big work that made a particular impression on him was J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, which once he discovered that the school library had the first two volumes, he would consistently check them out. As a result of his affinity for reading, he would later win the School English Prize, as well as the School Reading Prize. Among other impactful works on Gaiman were the writings of Mary Shelley, Rudyard Kipling, Edgar Allan Poe, and Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the latter of which he read to the point of knowing by heart. He would also find enjoyment and inspiration from other mediums such as in the realm of comic books where he was particularly enthralled by Batman. The British comedy troupe Monty Python also left a lasting impression on him. He even owned a copy of Monty Python's Big Red Book as a teenager. When Gaiman was around 19 or 20 years old, he wrote a letter to his favorite science fiction author at the time, R.A. Lafferty. Merely nine years old when he first discovered Lafferty's writings, a decade later still captivated by his works, he asked Lafferty for advice in the letter on becoming an author. Lafferty replied with an encouraging and informative letter, along with some literary advice. One can only guess that something in Lafferty's response must have inspired him. In the early 1980s, Neil pursued journalism, conducting interviews and writing book reviews as a way to learn how the literary world worked, as well as to form connections that he hoped would later assist him in getting his own work published. It was a steady climb that led to him ultimately managing to write and publish his first book in 1984, which was a biography about the band Duran Duran. That same year, he would dive further into his passion for comics. While waiting on a train at London's Victoria Station, he started reading Swamp Thing, written by Alan Moore. Moore's fresh and vigorous approach to the medium considerably impressed him. It had such an impact, he would later state that from then on, he became an avid comic book reader, frequently visiting the London comic book shop, Forbidden Planet. His second book, Ghastly Beyond Belief, 
a book of quotations co-written with Kim Newman would be published in 1985. Even though he thought he'd done a terrible job, the book's first edition sold out very quickly. By this time, however, his mind was on comics. After forming a friendship with the comic book writer that had impressed him so, Alan Moore, he began writing comic book scripts. Quickly thereafter, he picked up the writing on Miracle Man after Alan Moore finished his run on the series. Impressed with his work, DC Comics hired Gaiman in February of 1987. With DC, he would write the limited series Black Orchid, which opened more doors for him. Karen Berger, who later became head of DC Comics' Vertigo, read Black Orchid and offered him a job to rewrite an old character called The Sandman. Accepting the offer, he was told to put his own spin on the character. The Sandman would go on to become one of Gaiman's most famous works. His first official fiction novel, done in collaboration with fantasy author Terry Pratchett, was Good Omens, published in 1990. His first unaccompanied fiction novel release, Neverwhere, would come several years later in 1996. The book was released in tandem with the television series of the same name, Neverwhere, which he also wrote. Although the TV series did not receive much international exposure, the novel, on the other hand, proved to be a great success, making Neil Gaiman a name to be reckoned with. Just like most writers starting out, he experienced a lot of rejection early on in his career. Instead of dwelling on it and letting it hinder him, he chose to use the rejections to discover which areas of his writing could stand improvement. Indeed, he kept improving his skills, learning how to write stronger conflict into his stories, how to create characters that were more vulnerable and authentic, and how to craft stories that made readers keep turning the page. When younger, He'd worried that the types of stories he wanted to tell would give the reader too much of a view into his soul, something he was wary of. Later, however, he would come to realize that readers wanted exactly that. They wanted him to spill himself onto the page, allowing a chance to know his thoughts and ideas on a deeper level, establishing a stronger connection with the material he had written. Once he began doing this, he gained more attention. He would eventually say that every writer has certain skill gaps. The key is to identify your gaps in order to be able to fill them. In relation to that, he reflects that rejections are a great, albeit painful, way to identify said gaps. When he began taking writing more seriously, it was a lot easier to write on the computer given that he didn't need to worry about wasting or buying paper. But after a decade of working this way, he wanted to experiment with a different method. With the novel Stardust, published in 1999, he ventured into trying to write longhand. In his mind, the text of the novel Stardust is written in the 1920s, and in trying to get the authentic feel of the time explored in the book, he bought a fountain pen, a big notebook, and began to write by hand. He was also curious to find out if the experiment would change or alter his style or narrative. He was positively surprised to find that it did, and did so for the better. Writing by hand would force him to think his way through whole sentences before putting them on paper, and he would therefore write less, but tighter. 
Over time, he would find that he truly enjoyed writing with fountain pens, and even liked the scritchy noise the pen nib made as it moved across the paper. For those curious, his favorite pen is the Pilot 823, which he has stated he's used to write more than a million signatures through the years. He has stated that it doesn't feel real when he's writing on paper, and that it only becomes real once it's typed into the computer. This is, in part, a process of trying to trick himself into a different flow of writing, one that allows him to write more freely as the story doesn't feel locked just yet. For this same reason, the second draft of a novel would be typed into a computer. Things would of course be changed or deleted in the process, but the original template still shaped the story differently than it had when he'd written the first draft straight into the computer. The first drafts of Sandman, Dream Hunter, Anansi Boys, The Graveyard Book, and American Gods were all written by hand. In particular, American Gods' first draft was written into a big leather-bound notebook. He also made sure that there was a level of discontinuity between the first and the second drafts. After he'd written the first draft of a few chapters, he would stop and type in a second draft of each chapter into the computer. This would constantly keep him jumping between the realities and restrictions of the drafts. Now while his novels are written longhand, anything script-wise is written directly into the computer. He has professed his love for writing dialogue and how he likes using screenwriting software for that. In regards to his writing routine, he quite simply just sits down and does it. When he does, he gives himself two options. He can either sit there and write, or he can sit there and do nothing. Those are the only two options he gives himself. Naturally, he most often chooses to write. Being a non-believer in writer's block, he chooses to write every day. Even if he feels uninspired, he writes. Despite not believing in writer's block, he does keep a second story on the back burner just in case he needs a break from the writing he's focused on at the time. Quote, On bad days, you feel like a very tired bricklayer. But the funny thing is, when something of yours gets published and you read the work, you realize that there really isn't any difference between the words you wrote on the good days and those you wrote on the bad days. And that's incredibly humbling. End quote. Regarding American Gods, what appeared first was a rough sketch of the characters Neil Gaiman wanted to explore. Not quite having a plot yet, he tried placing the characters in a murder mystery. He envisioned that the two main characters of the story, who would later be known as Wednesday and Shadow, were going to a small town to solve a murder, but this quickly proved wrong. He was five pages in when it became abundantly clear that the characters wanted to go elsewhere. They wanted to tell a different story. He then decided that he'd attempt to follow their lead instead of trying to force them into a box they did not fit into. The idea that would eventually become American Gods drifted in and out of his head for years, while he was busy writing other works. Then, in May of 1997, that would change as he found himself unable to get the concept out of his thoughts. 
When he'd go to sleep, he'd see parts of the novel unfold as if it were a movie clip. For several nights in a row, he would see another few minutes of the story in his mind's eye, further captivating him. It was in June of 1997 that Gaiman wrote on his battered Atari palm top that the protagonist, who would later be known as Shadow, would wind up as the bodyguard for a magician. The magician offers the job to Shadow after they are seated next to each other and get acquainted on an airplane, which was one of the recurring visions. The protagonist's life is in shambles, so he accepts the job and thus begins the journey. The story was starting to find its place, but it wasn't there just yet, so he put it aside for the time being. A year later, he returned and continued to work the story. The magician was no longer a magician, but now had a name at least. Wednesday. He didn't know what the bodyguard was called just yet. He tried writer, but it just didn't feel right. That same summer, in 1998, sleepless and awake dreaming during a stopover in Reykjavik, Iceland, he began to ponder if people brought their gods with them when they migrated to America from Scandinavia and Europe. That evening, in his hotel room, he wrote to his editor, explaining that he had an idea for a book. In the letter he wrote, American Gods will be a big book, I hope. A sort of weird, sprawling, picaresque epic, which starts out relatively small and gets larger. Not horror, although I plan a few moments that are up there with anything I did in Sandman, and not strictly fantasy either. It's about the soul of America, really. What people brought to America, what found them when they came, and the things that lie sleeping beneath it all. At the top of the letter he wrote, American Gods, convinced that he would come up with a better title later on. A few weeks later, his editor sent him a mock-up of the book cover, a road and a lightning strike, and at the top it said, American Gods. Gaiman found it both off-putting and exhilarating to have the cover before anything was written. He had vague ideas and visions, but nothing solid as of yet. With that realization, all thoughts of ever finding another title were gone. This was the book cover. This was the book. Now he just had to start writing it. In September of 1998, he did just that. He began to write on it again, this time with the first-person narrative. He tried calling the main character Ben Kobold, but that was quickly discarded. Jack was also discarded, and so was the name Lazy. Finding it very difficult to find the right name after several more attempts, of all places, he finally found it in the title of an Elvis Costello song. The song is called Shadow and Jimmy, and something about the name Shadow connected. He tried it on for size and found that it fit. He now had a name for the bodyguard. The first-person narrative, however, would fall off as he felt that this was a character that needed to be seen from the outside rather than the other way around. Once having discarded the first chapter, which was written in the first person, he made a new attempt in June of 1999. On a train headed home from San Diego Comic-Con, the story seemed to click and the ideas began to flow and connect. Along the way, he got off the train in Minneapolis, Minnesota and drove the rest of the way to Florida by back roads, 
taking the routes he imagined Shadow would take in the novel. He ate Cornish pasties in the Upper Peninsula and cornbread hush puppies in Cairo, Illinois. Finding himself in what he considered strange, unusual places, he did his best to write down his experiences for future reference. Despite being one of the hardest books he'd ever written, and ending up twice as long as he'd originally planned, Gaiman enjoyed the overall writing process. On good writing days, he would later state he felt more like the reader than the writer, which was something he hadn't felt very often. Much of the book was made up of short stories about the different gods, of which about half a dozen would wind up in the book. The plot he initially began with had twisted and snaked, and he slowly realized that what he considered to be the initial plot wasn't the plot at all. He kept molding it and working the story, writing furiously until the book was nearly 200,000 words long. Now to put that into perspective, the entire Lord of the Rings series, including The Hobbit, is around 570,000 words long. He wrote more than one-third of the entire Lord of the Rings series in one book. Then, one day in January 2001, while sitting in a cold and empty house in Ireland, he saved the document for what he thought would be the last time and realized that he had completed the novel. It had taken close to nine years since the first seeds of ideas and visions had come to him in 1992, but the book was now complete. On the plane on the way back to the U.S. from Ireland, he read Stephen King's book on writing and was inspired to comb through his own novel to do more final rewrites and reworks. He had also been fired up by King's war on adverbs and was encouraged to do a search and trim off those in his manuscript, though a lot of them would survive the process. Back in the U.S., he declared the novel finished for the final time, missing the deadline by a year, but the final draft was done and complete. Upon its release, the novel gained much praise by reviewers and critics as well as other authors and became a bestseller. In 2011, publisher William Morrow released a 10th anniversary edition of the novel. This version was touted to be Gaiman's preferred version of the book and restored 12,000 additional words that had been edited out of the original for various reasons. Included in the appendix of the 2011 version is the scene where Shadow meets a Jesus-like figure a scene that fans much appreciated finally being able to read. Twenty years after it was first published, it has become one of his most well-known novels and has spawned into a TV series, gaining even more pop culture relevance. Looking back on it, he is proud of the book and is happy that he wrote it when he did, professing that he could not have started that book ten years earlier in his career. The complexity of it would have made him stumble, he says and self-doubt would have hindered the progress. In 1998, however, despite wondering what he was doing, where the story was going, and questioning himself every four days, he had the experience and stamina to keep charging ahead. Something that clearly paid off. As always, I'm going to leave you with one final quote from the author. Now go and make interesting mistakes, make amazing mistakes, 
make glorious and fantastic mistakes, break rules, leave the world more interesting for you being here, make good art." End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. I, along with the creators of this podcast, kindly ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time. Keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemoorharden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemoorharden. <laughs>